0: Nice to see all of you, as always, and uh, hope you're feeling comfortable and at a good three-foot range from the person next to you. Uh, grab your Bibles. Let's jump into 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at two books tonight. They're easy ones. They're 1 and Second Thessalonians, so that's a simple, simple one to do. So, all right, we're going to have fun here tonight. And uh, the world just continues to unfold in what, for many, would just be chaos and hysteria and fear. Um, but tonight, we get to talk about our blessed hope. You guys excited about that? I sure am. So, uh, yeah, First Thessalonians. Now, as we normally do, we're going to take some time here tonight and look at the the who, the when, the where, the why, all the like. And so, obviously. 1 Thessalonians, again, written by Paul the Apostle, who's written so many of these epistles that we've been in lately and, and wrote a lot of these letters to specific churches and uh, uh, and for specific reasons. Now, this epistle, uh, the when, this is written, 1 Thessalonians, written around... AD 51, 2nd Thessalonians written around AD 52, just a few months after he'd written the first letter, he wrote the second letter. Now, what's interesting is that would make 1st and 2nd Thessalonians some of Paul's, uh, you know, oldest letters, the, the, you know, earliest written letters and some of the earliest, you know, of the New Testament books that were written. So, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians very, um, early on in their writing. Where? So the location of uh, Thessalonica, Thessalonica was the largest city in Macedonia. It was the capital of that province. Thessalonica was also a seaport city in the Thermaic Gulf of the Aegean Sea. And so because of the location of where Thessalonica was, it was a very critical trading center that was also along the Ignatian Way um, let me bring up just a map here and so you can see right up kind of near the top Ignatian Way was a very big common route of, of commerce and travel and such and so it ran through Thessalonica which made that a very popular um, place, location now Paul had visited this area on his second missionary journey he'd come in there and, and as he did in typical Paul fashion he headed straight to the synagogue and as he went there, of course, his heart and his, his, you know, purpose really, his desire was to reach out to his fellow Jews and to see them get saved and, and reached with the gospel. Now, as Paul goes into this area here of, of Thessalonica, as he goes in the synagogue, he's there and he's, he's preaching. Um, many people were persuaded with the gospel there that uh, Paul was sharing. So they joined along with Paul. Titus was with him as well, or sorry, um, Silas was with Paul at this time. So many Jews began to join with Paul with excitement and joy with the gospel, with coming to know Jesus. Now that lasted for about three Sabbaths. It tells us in Acts chapter 17 is kind of the background, the context for um, what we're seeing being written in Thessalonians. Um, And so Paul's there for three Sabbaths, he goes and he shares the gospel, but then as there were many that came and joined with Paul in excitement over the gospel. There were also many that were opposing the gospel. And that began to make things very difficult here. And So they began to kind of hunt down Paul. They wanted to go and stir up trouble. So they go to the marketplace and they begin to select evil men. Here's the Jews, right? Jewish uh, leaders there. And, and, and they go and they grab some evil men to kind of really stir up some some trouble and, and violence there. They went to find Paul and Silas, couldn't find him. So they focused on Jason, who was their host while they're there in Thessalonica. And so they grab Jason and they bring him out. And again, they begin to incite them with being traitors. And, and um, you know, they just began to cause some trouble. It's interesting because in, in Acts 17, verse 6, it tells us that these Jewish, you know, people are trying to stir up trouble. They say, these Christians are those that are turning the world upside down. Right, I mean that's kind of a pretty cool thing. Not so much that they're turning the world upside down, but they're more so turning the world right side up, you know? Because the world was in an upside down place already, and so here's Christians now. They're coming in, and they're what are they doing? They're they're sharing love. They're they're coming and serving one another. They're they're walking in this humility and grace. And yet, to that, the people go. They're turning the world upside down. I mean, they're restoring what is actually good and helpful and 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 a blessing. So Paul and Silas now, what happens is they fled to um, the next city over at night. At the direction of the brothers there, they're going, Paul, Silas, like you guys are in trouble here. or Or you guys, if you stay, you're going to be in danger. And so they basically order Paul and Silas to flee at night here, just to get away from this potential danger and keep themselves safe so they can continue on. With the work, and so Paul eventually lands in Corinth, where he wrote this letter. Now, to the Thessalonians, a short while after departing from them. Now, one of the reasons why he wrote was to comfort and assure his friends that were still there in Thessalonica, right? All the people that he ministered to, all the people that had come to faith because of the gospel being preached. So he wants to come and encourage them and and assure them uh, uh, of different things here. And and really to assure them that he wasn't just abandoning them and leaving them high and dry. He writes to encourage them and reveal his love and his concern for them. Paul also wrote this letter to assure them in certain doctrines of the faith, primarily that of the return of Jesus. Something that he began to share with them about the, you know, the, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he's coming again, and so. He wants to assure them that Jesus is coming again to hold on. And in fact, Paul's going to make reference to the return of Christ at the end of every chapter here in 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter is going to have a reference to this soon-and-coming return of Jesus. So these Christians here, I mean, they were facing persecution, right? I mean, Paul had faced it, Jason faced it. These Christians were facing the persecution going on here. And, and so they had begun to kind of wonder... If we're going through all this trouble, I mean, wasn't the Lord supposed to kind of free us and rescue us from all this? And if we're facing persecution, does it mean that we've missed the return of the Lord? Has he come and and we've missed it by chance? And so they're beginning to worry about these things. So Paul writes to let them know that that's not the case. And in fact, to keep pressing on because it's all going to be worth it. Keep looking to Jesus. You haven't missed him. He's coming soon, Right? So keep pressing on regardless of what you're, you're going through. So here's what we're going to see as we go through these books here. First of all, we're going to see this personal commendations and explanations there in chapters 1 and 3 of First Thessalonians. We're going to see the practical instructions and exhortations in chapters 4 and 5. And then in Second Thessalonians, we'll see this persistent reassurance and encouragement that Paul wants to give to these believers here in Thessalonica. So... Look at chapter one. Let's just jump down to verse two because Paul gives us his, his very common greeting in verse one there. But then in verse two, we read this. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing beloved brethren, your election by God. So Paul was thankful, wasn't he, for these Christians. Because of the way that they've been continuing on in their faith, it's not been easy. All right. They've undergone some some persecution and trial. It's it's been tough for them. But Paul says remember this in, in your life and in your commitment to, to Christ that, that God's been good, right? And he has saved you and he's done a great work in you. And so, remember in this day, to commit your life to Christ was, for these believers, to really give it all up, you know, to say goodbye to many comforts you would hold in the world, to family ties, to social uh, status and, and different situations, uh, different things that you would enjoy, to become a Christian in this day was to really say, I'm giving all that up, Right? And, and today, to give your life to Christ, at least here, doesn't hold nearly the sacrifice it did then. So Paul emphasizes for these believers their work of faith, their labor of love, and patience of hope. These, these aren't your typical lead-in lines for, for witnessing, right? You know, just keep working for that faith, keep laboring on, just be patient. You don't, you don't pump up Christianity by using those kinds of terminology, but for these believers here, that was the reality for them, right? And ultimately, it is the truth of a life that's surrendered to Jesus, that we continue on with this work of faith, this labor and love and patience of hope. Because it does cost something when we give our life to Jesus. But there's no doubt something attractive to people over a commitment that costs. Because people are more willing, I think, to live for something if they see others are willing to die for it. And these Christians were in that place. Being a Christian is going to cost you, but it's a cost that is more than worth it. Would you agree? Amen? Amen. So Paul is looking to encourage these believers in these things here. Let me move this back here. And notice as these Christians have been living for Jesus, there's been a great great witness and fruitful work coming from their lives. There's a purpose for all that, that God allows in our lives. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. For And I love this. For from you... The word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So I love what Paul says here. The word of the Lord through these believers who have been going through trial and persecution that Paul says, keep pressing on without work of faith, labor, of love, patience, and hope. Keep moving forward because, I mean, your very testimony has been sounding forth from you. The word of the Lord has sounded forth. That's so cool. That term sounded forth is the Greek word um, exeheo. Exeheo, it's where we get our word echo. Pretty cool, right? I think of, of whales or, or dolphins with, you know, their echolocation where they're just sounding these these sound waves going off and it's bouncing off different things to kind of see what's around them in a sense, right? It's how we should be living our lives where the word and the work of God is just resonating within us and reverberating out from us this great truth and blessing of God and that it is just kind of bouncing off every place around us. Everywhere we go, it's just kind of the sound is just bouncing off the goodness of God the work of God, the greatness of God. See, these believers in Thessalonica were making an impact far and wide by what God had done in them and for them. They were sounding forth. It was like an echo just going out to regions around them. And that impact was so great that Paul says, we don't even need to say a word about this. I don't need to say anything. That's a miracle, isn't it, right? Paul's going... Man, you've done the work for me. I don't need to say anything because your work and your word is sounding forth and is making a difference. It's impacting many. And I pray that we, we live lives that way where we recognize what we've received in God and we're just saying, Lord, I just want that to continue to reverberate out from me just to sound forth, to be like an echo around my community, around my home, around my workplace, just echoing out the greatness of God. That's what this church is doing and Paul's commending them in it. And here's the testimony these believers had. We, we read it already, but in verse nine and ten, we read about this salvation of the, uh, of the Lord, this kind of past, present, and future work of God. Because it says there in verse nine that they were saved from idols, their past, but they're also saved to serve the true And living God right at the end of verse 9, right? The present situation. And then verse 10, we look at the, the future work of God. That they're going to be saved from the wrath to come when Jesus comes again. So again, Paul's referring to this return of Jesus. This return of Christ where he's wanting to remind them of, give them hope over these things. Say, listen guys, keep moving on. Because of what Jesus has done and he's coming again. You know, we can always look back in our lives of what God has done we can look to what he's doing today. And sometimes that can be hard to see where we wonder, Lord, what are you doing today? But he's at work today to trust him. And, and he's, he's doing that work of, of continuing to grow us in, in salvation, continuing to refine us, making us more like him. He's at work today. Sometimes we just don't recognize exactly what he's doing. Sometimes we don't like what he's doing in refining us, but he's at work. And he's preparing us for what is to come where we're going to see him. Again, one day. This is what Paul points out to this church here. And then look at chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you, the gospel of God, In much conflict, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but but God, who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. So Paul's stay in Thessalonica didn't last long because this opposition had come in, as I mentioned, and, and they were looking to thwart, you know, the work of God. So after Paul was chased away and encouraged to move on, these enemies of the gospel wanted to silence, you know, ultimately, that work of Paul to kind of nullify it and really silence these new converts, in a sense, right? Make them think that, oh, this is all nothing. They were beginning to badmouth Paul, trying to discredit him, right? And so Paul takes some time now to reassure these new believers that he came to them as a messenger of God. And that he wasn't trying to please men, but as he says there, he was rather looking to please God in verse 4. Because God knows their very hearts. Paul wasn't going to mess around with this. Paul lets to know that he could have pulled the apostle card, right? And made some real demands of the people. But he came in gentleness. In fact, in verse, in verse 7 he says, We were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul says, man, we came to you in love and in grace and gentleness. Paul wasn't trying to be this, you know, head honcho saying, hey guys, you better just listen to me because I got some authority here. No, he came in gentleness. Paul was so affectionate for them and wanted the best for them that he was willing even to lay his own life down for them. That was how much he considered these believers dear to him. He says in verse 8, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Paul was willing to lay it all down for them. He wasn't there with some ulterior motive. He wasn't there to to benefit or gain off of these people as some of these these enemies of the gospel were maybe trying to say, oh, Paul is coming. He's using you. That's all. Paul says, I was willing to lay down my life for you. Now, Paul comes along here, and he again commends them in verse 13, where we read here, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So, you know, there's people today that look at the Bible and they, they view the Bible as just a bunch of, you know, nice stories, Right. Ah, oh, there's, some, there's some nice things in there. Oh, there's some things that we would rather just flip over and ignore. But other things, yeah, it's, it's okay. They view the Bible as though it's just not really the authority of God. And you have some churches today that, that, that can have a deflated view of the Bible. And some churches pander to that view by also treating the Bible as just a book of, you know, nice stories. You know, nice things that we can maybe learn a, a thing or two from, but not as it is the word of God. See, Paul says, this is not the word of man. And, and, and he commends these believers at Thessalonica that they didn't receive the word as it were the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And that is how we need to receive the word of God. And notice, Paul says at the end of verse 13, which also effectively works in you who believe. I think that's so huge. That's so good. Because the word of God is that which has an effect in our lives. The word for effectively is a Greek word, energeo. I love it. That's where our energy comes from in a sense of transforming and changing us to be more like Jesus. It's the word of God that's living and it produces life in us. Do you, do you understand? I love how Paul says, man, this is uh, you know effectively working in you. I trust that you've all experienced the effective work of God and the word of God where it comes in as that living word that's, you know, that double edged sword, right? Piercing right in and doing that effective work in our lives. And so, Word of God, that's going to have that effect of changing and transforming and growing and maturing us. I mean, this is a valuable thing that we have here. This is not something just to take as the word of man or just some stories. This is the living word of God that is going to have an effect in our lives. I'm glad for that. And I hope and I pray that you are experiencing that on a daily basis. Now, again, Paul seeks to to reassure these Believers here, that despite what others might be saying regarding his absence, as though he may have bailed on them or flew the coop the minute persecution came, Paul, rather, is showing that he had longed to be with them. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Verse 17 says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavor more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So Paul's desire here, he's spelling out, he desired to be with these believers, right? He had only a short time with them. He desired to come back to them. But he says, I've been hindered by Satan. Right there in verse 18, I've been hindered by Satan. Now, how does that work? You might think, how, how is Satan, you know, doing? It? isn't God in control, right? How is Satan hindering? I mean, you, you look at this and you go, how oh, is this all working? Well, yes, we do know God is in control of all things. And we know that Satan cannot do anything unless God permits him, right? So is this God or Satan? Then that's hindering Paul. Well, we know from Acts 16, verse 6, that Paul did encounter times where he was unable to go into certain places because the Holy Spirit was forbidding him, restricting him, hindering him from doing so. I think we can safely say that when we're moving outside of God's will, well, he's going to put things in place to hinder our progression, to hinder us from moving forward. He's going to do that work, stopping us. We're going to be hindered by God. But Satan is at work when we are often in God's will to try and prevent us from carrying out his will. These things often result in a greater work, though, of, Patience and trust as we look to the Lord. As Satan is at work to try to trip us up and hinder us. And will cause us to lean on the Lord, to look to the Lord, to ask him for help and direction. And so, as Paul is doing that, what's happening? Well, God's at work. Because what happens? Well, Paul's able to take some time now to write this letter to the church because he's not able to be there and be with them. So he writes this letter by which we benefit greatly from. And churches for centuries have benefited from this. So we see that though Satan might be at work, God's just gone. That's all right, because I have a purpose in this. I'm going to have Paul write a letter to them, which is going to be passed down for ages to the benefit of many. And Paul ends that chapter there by saying in verse 19 that, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Now it's interesting, the New Testament lists five crowns available to the Christian. We see an incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians nine twenty four. We see the crown of life in Revelation two ten. We see a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, 8. We see the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, 4. But here, Paul refers to these believers as that crown of rejoicing. And that goes to the person who leads others to Jesus. See, the Thessalonians were like Paul's crown, a heavenly reward. He had seen them come to know Jesus. Paul knew that they were going to be in heaven one day with him. So this is like Paul's crown of rejoicing. I'm rejoicing over the fact that you've come to know Jesus. Imagine the people that are going to be in heaven because of Paul's faithfulness to share the gospel. What a rush it'll be. But how about you? Are you those that are certain to see people in heaven because you were faithful to share the gospel with them? It's true, the only thing better then going to heaven is taking someone with you. Isn't that a great thing to be able to do? Oh, the greatest thing we can experience is being in heaven. But I think the next best thing is just knowing that someone is brought there with you. Lead others to Jesus and you too are going to be laying up a crown of rejoicing. First Thessalonians 3 now. Jump into verse 3. Paul says that, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. So as these believers underwent persecution, Paul wants them to know that this isn't unusual or strange. Guys, don't freak out over this. Don't fear. Don't worry that you've you've missed the boat by any means, right? That's why Paul is writing this they're undergoing persecution, they're kind of a little bit worried. So Paul says, "Listen, don't fear or worry about this. It's like what Peter says in First Peter four twelve: Beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you." A lot of believers think, "Oh my goodness, why am I going through this? Does this mean I'm not a good Christian because I'm in, encountering struggle and trial?" Yes, that's exactly what it means. You're not a very... No, it doesn't. But that's what people think sometimes, doesn't it? Isn't it? They, they worry. They think, am I doing something wrong? Peter says, Peter says, no. Don't think it's strange concerning this fire trial, which is to try you. God doesn't work through these things, you see. And Paul himself says, listen, we've been appointed to this. Don't be rattled in your faith when things aren't going as smooth as you thought they should. Because ultimately... Our hope is not in this world, but in the one to come. And that's why Paul is emphasizing all of this in this epistle, in this letter for us. The great emphasis is on this blessed hope, this, this return of Jesus, this being with Jesus. So don't be rattled in your faith. These are things that we can expect, that we've been appointed to ultimately, even as we've seen Jesus himself saying, as we alluded to on Sunday, Right? I mean, you can expect the world to hate you because it hated him. Now, here's what Paul does instruct them. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Verse 8 says, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. See, there might be that temptation for many people to go, Oh man, the fire's getting turned up. I'm going to bail. I'm going to run. I'm going to get out of here what does Paul say no stand fast in the Lord because in that you're going to live you're going to find life running from the Lord might lighten the persecution temporarily but standing fast in the Lord is going to bring the fullness of life for us see position of standing fast brings to mind a group of soldiers that are holding their ground in the midst of opposition and that's how we're to be in this world we're going to have opposition like I said Jesus himself said that we would but yet he's also said that he's overcome the world. So we don't have to fear and fret as though this is going to be the end of it all. It's not. Persecution might come, but stand fast in the Lord because it's in that that you live and you experience true life, the fullness of life. Now, one way we can stand fast is when we're standing with one another in unity and love. So Paul, here at the end of chapter 3, prays for the church. Look at verse 11. He says this, Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Again, Paul's emphasis is the coming of the Lord Jesus, right? Since he's coming again, live in love and holiness. In fact, it's love that I believe is going to breed holiness. Why? Because love is the absence of self. See, when we're focused on self, sin tends to dominate, doesn't it? When we're focused on self, man, that's just right there giving way to sin oftentimes. But when we begin to walk in love, love is the absence of self. Our eyes are off of self. And we begin to bless others. We're walking in greater holiness and set-apartness for Jesus. And as we do, we become established in him, all the more ready for his return. That's what Paul is instructing and praying for these believers. And not only is this a good thing to do for love's sake, but look at what chapter 4 tells us. It's the very will of God. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles, who do not know God. Now, I don't know about you, but I love it any time that the word of God brings up something so clear as to the will of God. Because this is something that Christians, I think, struggle over. They, they just tend to have that, that real desire to know the will of God. But oftentimes, what they're looking for is they want to be certain of what God's will is for the life in the what and the where, Right? What do you want me to do, God? Where should I be? And and and, and we get so concerned over the, the what and the where on, on many issues, whereas I think God is just much more concerned with the who and the why. In other words, he's just more concerned about who you are and and and, and why you're doing what you're doing. And and the will of God oftentimes is laid out for us in those terms. Here's the will of God, your sanctification. Well, what about this, God? Where should I be in doing that? What? No, don't worry about the what and the what. Just work on sanctification. That we already know through Peter, in, in chapter 1, verse 2, I believe it is, is that work of the Holy Spirit. See, God's much more concerned about just who we are and living these lives for Him that are set apart. That's that term, sanctification. Where we get those, the same kind of terms as holy, right? Set apart, that's, that's, that's the idea being set apart for Jesus. And when we're doing that, that begins to take, that begins to put those other things in a place that much more. We're saying, Lord, I'm just living my life set apart for you, to honor you, to glorify you, to to bless you. And then when we're doing so, we're not going to be finding ourselves doing things that are out of the will of God. Now, one way to be living this life of sanctification was by not conducting themselves like the Gentiles do, as Paul says here in verse verse 4 and 5. And Paul's focus is on fleshly sexual activity. Because in that day, this was so pervasive, right? These are the things that were were very common. Now, we think we have it way more difficult today because of a sex-obsessed culture, right? We think, oh, it's so much harder to live this way. Abstinence, that was just a bible thing we can't we can't expect that today but listen it was no different then in fact i think most likely it was even more out in the open and even more pervasive in that culture i mean think about what they were dealing with they had temples devoted to goddesses and part of the worship there was to join in with temple prostitutes anything went right we hear people coming out of the closet today well back then there were no closets everything was just out it was just there was no, you know, shame or, or anything. There were no boundaries back then. It was just all out there, right? People don't have to be in closets. It was just out in the open. I mean, it was, a, it was a sick and depraved culture then. It's interesting that in the book, The Rise and the Fall of the Roman Empire, Givens writes that Rome was not conquered from without, but was rather destroyed from within as the morality of the nation became so rotten that it finally collapsed on itself. That's what went on there. So we can't think, oh, well, when the Bible talks about all these things, I mean, that was just a different day, and today it's so much more harder. No, it wasn't, and no, it isn't. These are the things that that God's calling us into to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be distinct from that of the world. And again, that's what leaves a witness in the world when we're living distinct and different. So Paul directs these believers to abstain from anything that would cause them not to be distinct and set apart from the regular flow of the world. Now, this church is doing well in these things, right? Paul's not coming down on them because they're not doing it. He's just reminding them of these things. Paul simply wanted them to continue on in it. So he says in verse 10 of chapter 4, And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That's what Paul's heart is. He's not bringing these things up. Because he's saying, you're doing so bad in it. No, he's saying, we, this is how to live, and we want you to increase more and more in these things. And may that be our heart as well, right? May you see yourself, uh, or, or you might see yourself as a seasoned Christian, as though you fulfilled and finished, you know, the Lord's calling for your life. But may our prayer be, Lord, help me to increase in love in grace and holiness and purity. May I increase in service and worship. May I increase in devotion to you, Lord. Because our lives, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, our lives should be increasing day by day to be more like Jesus. Because there's always room to grow because we're never going to be fully perfected this side of eternity, right? So there's always room to grow. We never reach the the point where we say, all right, There's no more room for me to increase. No, there always will be until we're with Jesus in heaven. So may that be our prayers. Paul is praying for this church to continue to increase more and more, becoming more like Jesus, continuing on in these things that they've been devoted to. And so Paul writes to encourage people through tribulation to keep pressing on. But now Paul changes direction a bit and seeks to encourage people that have lost loved ones because of persecution and primarily paul begins to share about the hope that we have in life and in death you see as these thessalonian believers were waiting for the return of jesus they began to worry about those that had passed on those loved ones those fellow believers that had now died and they're thinking what's going to happen to them have they missed out on the return of the Lord? Are they not going to be a part of this now because they've, they've passed on? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 13. And we just come to such a sweet passage of scripture. Verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus' So just because loved ones have died didn't mean that they've lost out or they've lost hope. Death does not rob us of our coming to Jesus. It only hastens it. (laughs) Right? Death doesn't rob us of our coming to Jesus. It only hastens it. It only brings us that much quicker into the presence of the Lord. Now that term that Paul uses, he uses that word fallen asleep for death. I think that's such a cool term, isn't it? When we see a believer that dies... It's as though they just fallen asleep. Now they knew in Jesus, as Jesus had said in John chapter eleven, right that great uh, verse on the resurrection. They knew that as believers they would never die. Right, that's what Jesus had said. So it'd be kind of weird for them to talk about these believers as though they had died. They're thinking, well, that doesn't add up because Jesus says we'll never die. So they began to coin that term, they just fall asleep. And it's a good description because, you know, when you see your kids sleeping, right? I mean, they could have just been complete monsters all day, right? But when you see them sitting there sleeping, you're just like, oh, look at that. They're just so perfectly at rest. They're just these little angels. They're just like, oh, it's so sweet. There's just this great kind of comfort there. And that's how it is for the believer. Because they're now fully and completely at rest in the Lord with their faith in Jesus regardless of what they've experienced they're now at rest in the Lord that can't be said for the unbeliever in fact, it's not spoken of in the Bible this term fall asleep for unbelievers this is something that's reserved for believers because it's just kind of like an intermediary state oh, they're, they're with the Lord we're not talking about soul sleep no, they're with the Lord But there's coming a day when that body as well is going to be resurrected and made new. That's the heavenly hope that we have by which we don't have to, as Paul says in verse 13, sorrow as others who have no hope. Because we have a great heavenly hope. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, for this we say to you. a lot of people say this passage here that Paul is describing is referring to you know, the second coming of Christ, the Lord's return, the second coming of Christ when he comes to this world and he establishes his kingdom reign. But there's nothing here about him coming back to the earth. He's talking about being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is what's being referred to as, I believe, the, the rapture. This right here is a Proof text of the rapture Now again many people will say Well the rapture is just kind of that, that human invented concept It was not a part In fact they'll say it's, it wasn't a part of the early church It was just created in more recent times You know and they'll reference certain people That they say was the one that came up with this idea Or theory of the rapture But you can look back at early church fathers And hear some of the things that they said And, and no doubt they believed in a, a rapture now, others will say, well, this word isn't even in the Bible. See, again, it's just, it just some human-created term. Because we don't see that word rapture in the Bible. Well, if you apply that logic to other things, you'd have to say there's no trinity. Because the word trinity is not in the Bible. In fact, there's no word Bible in the Bible. So I guess we don't really have a Bible because the word Bible isn't there in the Bible. So it's a real fallacy to argue from that logic. What we do see, this term, is caught up in verse 17. We shall be caught up. And that word caught up is the Greek word harpazo, where the Bible was translated. When the Bible was translated in Latin, they used the word rapimer, if I'm saying that correctly, I don't even know. But it's it's related to the word raptus in Latin, where, of course, we get our English word rapture. Now, uh, according to Greek scholar Kenneth Wuest, Here's what this term caught up implies. It implies to catch away speedily or to seize by force, to claim for one's own self, to move to a new place or to rescue from danger. Guess what? All those apply to what Jesus is coming to do for us at the rapture in catching us up to meet with him in the air by which then we are with him in heaven. And we see I think some great examples or or types, pictures of the rapture in the Bible. Enoch, I believe, is a great picture of the church who is raptured up, taken up to heaven. Elijah was raptured up, taken up into heaven without tasting death. Now, it tells us that all this will happen when the trumpet of God sounds, right? Trumpet of God sounds is there in verse 16. Now, this is interesting because trumpet calls are, are something very familiar to the Jewish person. Trumpets were, were used to declare war. They were blown to announce special times and feast holidays. They were used to gather God's people as they prepared to move. The Romans blew trumpets to announce the arrival of an important person. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 to 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. I think there's another great proof text there of the rapture here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and here in First Corinthians 15. When the trumpet shall sound, we're, we're not all going to see. We're not all going to face death. But one day, if the Lord wills, we're going to be caught up with him before death. Caught up, Right? where we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye in a moment. Now some have confused this trumpet sound with that from Revelation 8 to 11 with these trumpet judgments going forth. Yet in Revelation, those are trumpets blown by angels. This one is the trumpet of God. And before the last three trumpets sound in Revelation, an angel announces, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. But in Thessalonians, the word is not woe, woe, woe. It's rather comfort one another. This is good news for us. This is speaking of something different than what is being encountered in Revelation. This is something that precedes all of that. It's the rapture of the church. So again, the rapture is when Jesus comes that first time for his bride, just like he came, you know, in a sense, when he came um, at his first coming, he came, first of all, into Bethlehem, right? Where many people didn't recognize him. And then he came where he announced himself. They're riding into Jerusalem as the Messiah. Here he's going to come at his, before second coming, he's going to come again to catch up the church in the air. And, and he catches them up, takes them home to heaven, where we will, as a church, be with Jesus for seven years while the earth is encountering this seven-year tribulation of God. It's a period of time where there's the judgment of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And then the second coming happens after the tribulation. It's when he comes back to the earth with his bride following him. Revelation 19 verse 14 tells us that. That's us coming with him at his side. And it's at this time that he establishes his kingdom on the earth. Now, a lot of people, of course, like to ask, when? When is this going to happen? When can we expect this to happen? Soon, some people say, for sure. I'm sure we've all wondered when. But look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Paul tells them that the times of when, it's it's unimportant. I don't need to tell you about that. And then he talks about this day of the Lord. Now, this day of the Lord is a phrase mentioned 23 times in the Old and New Testaments. The day of the Lord is not restricted to a 24-hour period. That's not what we're talking about here. But it's a period of time when God dramatically intervenes and changes the course of human affairs. The day the Lord describes the ongoing process of God's supernatural judgment, something that dates back to the Old Testament predictions by Joel and Amos, Isaiah and Daniel, among others. Here, in Paul's reference, the day the Lord refers to the last three and a half years of the seven-year span of the tribulation when God's judgment will be poured out on the earth. But, as Paul says, these Christians are not in darkness. It's not going to creep up on them because they're children of light. They're not going to be around because God has not appointed them to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. We'll see that in a second here. But now, like I said, there's nothing that needs to happen... Before the rapture takes place That's known as the imminent return of Jesus Christ We all believe in the imminent return of Jesus But if people believe that the next thing that's going to happen Is the the physical return of Jesus Well then that's not an imminent return Because we know there's certain things As the Bible lays out that are going to happen Before he comes again Right? See, after the rapture The seven-year tribulation period will begin to unfold. That's the last week of Daniel's prophecy. This is all laying perfectly out with Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9. And that speaks of the prince of the people there, the Antichrist that's establishing a covenant or a peace treaty. But in the middle of that period, he's going to reveal his true colors and desecrate the temple. Jesus refers to that as the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, verse 15. Now, Daniel records also that it's going to be 1260 days from that point of the desecration of the temple until the return of the Lord. It's at this time that Jesus comes and thwarts the armies, gathering against him and his people, Armageddon, and then ushers in the final judgment and then the kingdom. Here's a little bit of a, a, a more laid out timeline as to what I believe the Bible has laid out for us and how things are going to unfold regarding the end times. We're living in the church age right now. The next thing that's going to happen there's nothing needs to happen before the rapture takes place. That's why it's the imminent return of Jesus. It can happen at any moment. We're not looking at, well, this prophecy should be unfolded first, or this should happen first. This scripture needs to unfold or be fulfilled first. No, nothing needs to be fulfilled or happen before the rapture of the Lord. But then, at the rapture of the church and being taken up to heaven for all believers, well, then that's going to usher in that seven-year tribulation. That's going to be marked by those three and a half years where the Antichrist has come into that treaty with Israel. Everybody's going to be feeling like, oh, things are going well, things are going to be great, you know. Um, And and, and Paul even alludes to that in chapter 5, verse 3, where everybody's going to be saying, peace and safety, everything's great. But then sudden destruction, because at that midway point of the tribulation, well, the Antichrist is going to go into the temple and seek to be worshiped. He's going to desecrate the temple. And that's going to bring in uh, what's called the Great Tribulation the last three and a half years where things really intensify. and Primarily, things really intensify against Israel and, and the pursuit of taking them out. But then at the end of that seven years, well, guess what's going to happen? Jesus is going to come back. This is his physical return. This is what's known as the second coming of Christ because he comes physically, where he sets foot down on this earth. And then he's going to usher in that thousand-year reign of Christ and then after that reign of Christ, there's going to be another rebellion, which he brings to an end, that final judgment, and then we move into that eternal state. So that's how things are going to unfold, that I believe the Bible lays out very clearly. And these are passages that we're looking at here today that's going to lay that out. So piecing it all together, the believer does not need to live in fear or worry. Like as I look at verse, verse 9, I already alluded to it, but it says there, chapter 5, verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. This is to be our comfort and our encouragement and our hope. But understand that God's not appointing us under wrath. And, and that wrath, now there's those that'll say, well, I believe in a post-trib rapture I believe in a mid-trib rapture some say I believe in a pre-wrath rapture where they'll say that the wrath of God is not happening until partway into the tribulation and so the rapture doesn't come until partway through the tribulation well I believe as Revelation points out that you know the very beginning of the tribulation it is the wrath of God it says you know the people are calling out fall us for the wrath of God coming, calling for the rocks to fall on us And the way that Revelation is laid out, you know, uh, Revelation 1 verse 19 gives us that that, um, built-in outline in a sense that John is told, write the things that you, um, the things that, what does he say? Write the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things which will take place after this. So chapter 1 is the revelation of Jesus, right? The things that you've seen, Jesus, write the things that are. The church, the next chapter two chapters, chapters two and three detail the church. And and really, you can look at that as like the, the history of the church in those two chapters. And then in chapter four, what happens? There's that word saying, John, come up here. Where to heaven? Come up. It's a picture of the rapture. That's taking place before any of the tribulation starts to unfold. There are through, chap- through chapter six and on to 19 of Revelation, or chapter 18. So, I don't believe it's a pre-rapture. A mid-trib rapture, again, doesn't seem to fit then. And a post-trib rapture, you go, what is the point? We're going to get caught up and then just come right back down again. That's the yo-yo rapture in my mind. And so it doesn't seem to equate or add up with what we see in Scripture. So there's many different views. There's views that people have that there is no rapture. There's different views as to the placing of the rapture. But I believe this is what fits according to what we see consistently through Scripture. All right, now, as, let's see here. Well, we'll, we'll keep moving here, because in 2 Thessalonians, we're just going to really cover one chapter in 2 Thessalonians here. We'll, we'll be coming to an end here, uh, quickly here. But um, Paul is going to be mentioning um, Something else that's a big part of the tribulation. As I've mentioned, the Antichrist coming onto the scene, as Daniel nine points out, Paul's going to take uh, some time to talk more about this Antichrist. He's not going to refer to him as the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians. He's going to use terms like, you know, son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one. But what's interesting is Second Thessalonians gives more details or more fuller teaching of the Antichrist in, in most of the Bible. Okay? And so it's important to kind of look at that. And again, one of the reasons Paul wrote the second letter was to further clear up any doubt and confusion regarding these end times. These believers were still questioning, "Ah, have we possibly missed out on the coming of the Lord? As they continued to experience persecution, they were beginning to wonder, did we do something wrong and we missed it? Well, Paul writes this letter, the second letter, to again just further reassure them and encourage them in these things. Look at chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Verse 1 says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, that's a great part of this writing here and concern for people, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you, that that can be taken as two separate events, right? you got, first of all, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, but then also our gathering together too, which would refer to the rapture. Being caught up, gathered together with him in the air. Paul says in verse 2, Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, that's the Antichrist, who, Paul says, opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Paul encourages them, listen, do not be troubled over the things to come, particularly thinking that the day Christ had already come, that they had missed it. So Paul goes on to elaborate that this day will not come until what? Until the falling away happens first. The falling away. Now, that's interesting. Falling away, in the Greek, is the word apostasia. Where we get our word what? Apostasy, right? So, we've typically looked at this verse as um, implying there's going to be a great falling away from the truth. There's going to be great apostasy that takes place. That the last days would be marked by apostasy. Jesus spoke in his Olivet Discourse there in Matthew 24, that the last days would be marked by deception. It'd be a real indicator of the end times. And I think we see a lot of that happening today, as the church seems to be forsaking the authority of God's word, moving away from just, you know, believing in and following obediently God's word. So I believe that is certainly going to be a sign of the end times, an apostasy, and moving away from truth. But here's another thought that I think is super interesting and important to look at. Because Greek scholar Kenneth Lewis also said this. The words falling away are an interpretation of the Greek word, not a translation. The Greek word can also mean departure. And that's interesting the way that some of the earliest English translations of the Bible interpreted that word. They'll use that word departed rather than falling away. In other words, this could be a reference to the departure of the church or as we've been discussing, the rapture. So again, we see that this day of the Lord, this period of time that the church at Thessalonica thought they missed won't happen until the church is removed, departed, taken away. It says it much the same way in verse 7. Look at verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Until he's taken out of the way. Now, what is that implying? Who's doing the restraining? I believe that's speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Because it's through the, the Spirit's power at work in the church that, that we're able to be salt and light in the world, which is doing what? It's, it's having a preserving effect in the world, right? Right? Were to be a preserving agent that is restraining full-on evil from running rampant in the world today. I mean, think how crazy and wicked society is with the church involved in it. Think about how crazy things have gotten. But imagine what it would be like if the church was removed and there was nobody speaking truth, speaking goodness and, and love into society. Speaking Jesus into the culture. And, and so, I believe what is being implied there in verse 7 is it's the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, being taken out. Because I believe God's always going to have a witness of the Holy Spirit in the world. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And it's the church that's being taken out and the influence of the church in culture and in society that is going to be removed, that's going to allow this to continue to unfold in a more evil way. And it's going to allow the Antichrist to carry out his work all the more and for all these awful things to unfold during the tribulation that we see Revelation detailing for us. But again, that is God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. And he's not going to bring his judgment Against the church, his people. He's going to take them out of the way before that happens. So I believe verse 3 there is a great, again, look at the rapture. That that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and then the man of sin is revealed. Just like verse 7 says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now is strange will do so until he's taken out of the way. Verse 8 and then the lawless one will be revealed. See, there's a lot of Christians that live today going, oh, I wonder who the Antichrist is going to be. Hmm. I think it could be this person. I think it could be, oh, it could be... And man, there's been some crazy theories where you add up, you know, all the, the, the number equivalent to a Hebrew name of somebody, you know, Prince Charles has been the Antichrist or, you know, um, uh, so many other people have been the Antichrist. Barney the Dinosaurs, his name adds up to, you know... It's just crazy, the theories that go on. But here's the deal. I don't believe we're going to know. Because we're not going to be here. Some people live thinking, I think that's the Antichrist right now. Now, the Antichrist could very well be alive. The Antichrist could very well be involved in world affairs. He could be very well having a seat in the EU or, you know, the the UN. It, It could be any of these things. We don't know. But he's not going to be revealed for who he is until the church is taken out of the way. It says it very clearly for us here in this passage. And then Paul goes on to share how this Antichrist is going to oppose and exalt himself. He's going to oppose all that is of God. He's going to seek to be worshipped as God there in verse 4. He's going to sit as God in the temple of God. That's when the abomination and desolation is going to take place. And then, things are going to really amp up. Things are going to get progressively worse after that happens, during that last part of the tribulation. Now, the tribulation is for that purpose as well, because this is going to be an opportunity now to really get the attention of the Jews. Because it's, it's there where, you know, when they begin to see this Antichrist, who they've trusted in, who they've been thinking is their Messiah... Because he's led them in the rebuilding of the temple, he's got this all established, sacrifices are going on. But then he's going to desecrate the temple. They're going to recognize this isn't our guy, and they're going to bring to mind the things that Jesus says. You know, to flee to the mountains, and they're going to do so. But all this is unfolding because this is during the tribulation where God is again intervening with Israel. Those seventy week prophecy Daniel is regarding God's people Israel, not the church, and this is that last. Period That last week of Daniel's prophecy, it's not for the church and the church isn't going to be here, but it's to get Israel's attention once more and call them back to him. And that's what's going to happen. Tells us in, in 2nd Thessalonians 2, verse 16, just continuing on here, Paul says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. This is what Paul ends up just kind of praying for the people here. God's given us great consolation, great comfort, great hope, right? So comfort your hearts, he says, and may establish you in every good word and work. That's a good prayer for all of us too you know, thinking about just the things that are going on in the world today. And and it changes by the hour as to what's going on and the responses by the world and the reactions of things. And, and people are just going to be continuing to live in fear and worry. You know, um, just today, Washington um, state and specifically Seattle area, I believe San Francisco area, they've banned large public gatherings now of anything over 250 people. So, Churches are going to be needing to make a a decision now on Sunday. Do we meet? Do we go against, you know, this ban that's been placed on us? Um, and, And it just, again, all these things are unfolding with the coronavirus. And it's just instilling fear into people and worry and wonder what's going on. But for the Christian, I mean, I think we can just look at these things that are going on and just go, Lord, I think this is just all setting things up for your soon return. I think the Bible has laid out that, that things are going to get more like this, you know. And yet, I think it just causes us to go, Lord, you're coming soon. These are just precursors for what, are, what is to come. And, and we're to live with just, a, again, that consolation, that comfort of heart. And just continue to be established in every good word and work. Paul wraps up again, encouraging us to continue on in, in chapter 3, verse 13. But as for you, brethren... Do not grow weary in doing good. Listen, when when the media is bombarding you with all these things and you're just fearing and wondering, what's the point of it all? No, Paul says, oh man, don't grow weary in doing good. Keep at it. Because the harvest becomes even more ripe under these circumstances and situations. You know, people are looking for hope. People are looking for answers. People are wondering, what's going on? And we get to tell them, oh man, let me tell you here about Jesus who's holding it all together Oh, it may not look like it, but he's got it all under control. And he's coming back again soon. And we get to lead in and share the gospel with people. So don't grow weary in doing good. Because when all these things are unfolding as we see them happening today, man, I think that just opens the door all the more to live these lives with this blessed hope we have and to share that with other people. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you here tonight, and Lord, we do look at the affairs of this world and the things that are going on, and there's been just such a, a panic and fear among many, and Lord, I pray that you would comfort our hearts here tonight to not worry or fear, Lord, but rather to be reminded that, God, you're coming soon, Lord, you're coming soon, may we Look in hope to that return to when we're going to be with you one day. But may we also continue on, Lord, without growing weary, without growing panicked, without growing fearful. May we continue on, Lord, doing good. And serving you and blessing others and, and doing so by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. That we can all have that blessed hope. So help us in that, Lord. We do pray for... All that's going on and just reports more and more coming out of people contracting this, this virus. Lord, so we pray just for healing. Lord, we pray for a stop to this virus. Lord, so we pray that you would do a work. We pray for wisdom for churches that are being called to not meet. And for them to take the right approach in these things. For you just to give them wisdom. God, we pray that you'd give us wisdom. That you keep us safe from these things, Lord. So God, we just pray that you would lead us in all this right now. But may we continue on just with that hope that we have in you. We ask this in your name, Jesus, amen. Amen.